What's good, everybody? Rafael Garcia again, second time today on July 11th. This time I'm back with uh, Shawan Hughes, and we're here to talk some MMA as we start off episode 126 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. How you doing there, Shawan? I've had it all, sir. All right, sir, you're already breaking up. Um, you're already breaking up. It's already been a busy day for you. Yeah, you're already breaking up a little bit, so can you get to a clearer spot for me, please? If you're doing a second show in one day, it's, it's pretty good. Chuan, you're already breaking up a little bit, so can you get to a yep. better spot, please? All right, I'm trying to move to another spot. Yeah, you sound better right there. If you, you started breaking up right from the start. Right here? Yeah, that's better there. How about now? So we got quite a bit. Yeah, man, you're good. You're good. Uh, we got quite a bit to talk about this week. We got to look back at UFC 239, look forward to UFC Sacramento, and talk about everything in between. So let's um let's start with some news actually before we jump into um, some recaps and some previews. Man, did you see uh, Bellator announced two big fights today? We got um, Patricio Fier against Juan Archuleta and. Gegard Musasi against Lyoto Machida. That is a rematch, and that fight is scheduled for an event that I have no idea when it is. Um, I just forgot. But it is an upcoming Bellator event. Uh, what do you think about those two fights? Let's start with the uh, for your, for your matchup. Um, it's a really good fight. I mean, once again, as we, every time we talk about Bellator, we always talk about how they don't have a lot of depth. They've actually been working on this. The, the Archuleta fair fight is a good one. It's one we haven't seen before, and it, it should it should be an action fight. So they're obviously listening to the fans. They've obviously put some work into building up Archuleta, and I think this I think this is a really good fight. I think it's an important fight. I think it's a good fight, and most importantly, it's a fight we haven't seen some some version of it already already in Bellator. That's kind of rare given given how the rosters are built and the amount of named fighters they have in the organization. So I'm actually excited for this fight. Do you think he has the capability of taking that title off of people? Um, I really don't. Is Looking at the paper, looking at the fight on paper initially, I don't really see how he does. I don't think Archuleta is, is, is a bigger hitter. He's clearly not the most seasoned fighter. The question just really going to become is whether he can dictate the pace of the fight and force Pitbull in, into making a mistake. But given the fact that Pitbull is the world championship level fighter, he's been around Bellator forever, and he's faced the best they've had to face, it's a lot harder. Said than done, but he the only way I see Archuleta, if Pitbull is allowed to assert his timing and allowed to dictate the pace of the fight, I fully expect him to, to win a one-sided decision. It just depends on how much how much of a risk Archuleta is willing to take to get to the title. He he can't to me he can't fight safe. He's gonna have to take risks, take chances to get that title off of him. And what about that second fight there, sir? We have um, Machida and Musasi. This is clearly a number one contenders fight with Machida recently dropping the title and getting um, and having to rematch someone that's defeated him in the past. What are your thoughts about this right here? And will it look different than that one that we saw, I believe, five years ago? was known for being quiet all his career and now he started talking so much and 
all of a sudden any fight he's involved in has some kind of beef or has some kind of undertones, uh, negative undertones towards it. As you know, he he criticized Leonardo Machida quite frequently about their fight in the UFC, and he's taken shots at him since he's been in Bellator and before Leota came over. So this instantly becomes somewhat of a grudge match. Um, I would have to favor Musasi. I think he's declined a little bit too, but Machida's declined more. He's not as quick as he used to be. I still don't think he takes punishment terribly well. He takes it worse than he used to. Um, unless Machida gets a, a fairly quick knockout, I would think Musasi could grind him down and uh, eventually stop him. It's just, it's just, it's one of those fights that has a high risk, high reward for both guys because Machida wins. He might be a title contender, but Machida's not a guy who's long for the sport, in my opinion. He's not going to be around four to six years at this level. And for Musasi, if he loses, you know, he's, He's very close to the title. He just held a title, and essentially losing to Machida to put him another two to three fights away from challenging for the title again. So it was a very high, high risk, high reward fight for those guys. What's interesting to me is that when I saw this, I um, immediately thought that Machida should be the favorite coming in. But what interests me the most is that I think Lovato beats both of them again. Um, I think he can defeat uh, Musashi, but but the Machida fight is more interesting to me. But I think he wins that one as well too. What are your thoughts of either of these guys facing off against the champion? Uh, I'd have to agree with you. Uh, in the case of Machida, he in the case of Machida, he's never been super physical, and even though he can grapple, I think a lot of his grappling has been a little bit overrated. Um, the, the times he's lost, he was clearly dominated by Luke Rockhold when Rockhold got his hands on him, was able to bully him, basically beat him with an inch of his life. I think Lovato being a better grappler and at this stage a comparable athlete, I think he's completely able to, he's able to duplicate that. Um, like I said, Machida's not quite as fast as he used to be. He's never been the biggest hitter and now he's not, his durability slipped. And so I think Lovato can pressure him, um, bully him, get him down and work him over. He, he might even catch him on the feet. I, I feel like Machida's just he, there's some, some holes in his striking game, and given the fact that he's a half step or two steps slower than he used to be, those holes get hurt, become even bigger. As far as Musasi, um, that grappling, that grap, the grap, there's there's such a disparity in the grappling, and he just can't overcome that. He's used to being able to outclass everybody in every single range, and Lovato Jr. is so far ahead of him, and there's one particular one that I don't see how he would come back and win the fight. I mean, of course, Musasi could kickbox him maybe do some sprawling brawl. But at this stage, I don't think Musasi is a good enough athlete, and I don't think he has the stamina to consistently fight a hard five rounds and win them all. That, that's based off what I've seen. If he could have won a hard, if he could have fought a higher five rounds, I think he would have beat Lovato the first time. But he's incapable of doing that anymore if he doesn't have clear advantages over you. And against Lovato Jr., he does not have clear advantages anymore. Good, good. Some good thoughts there, sir. Um, so as far as the news goes, that's really what I wanted to talk about today because we have a lot to recap from UFC 239. It was their big card of the summer, and it, it delivered from start to finish. We got a lot of good action across the card. We got a lot of fights that mattered for one reason or another and introduced us to some intriguing characters. So let's start with the main event first and foremost, um, where John Jones defeated Diago Santos by a split decision. The first question we got to ask is, who did you have the scorecard for when it was all said and done? Uh, Jones or Santos, who did you pick? I, I actually thought Jones won the fight fairly clearly. 
Um, Santos had some big spots of offense. He landed he landed his shots well, but he was never able to really consistently put shots together. He missed. He landed he landed a lot, but he missed just as much. He was he was able to hit Jones, but he never was able to hit Jones the way he wanted to. A lot of them hit the gloves. A lot of them just whiffed. A lot of times he couldn't pressure Jones the way he wanted to to put his hands together. And though Jones wasn't quite as effective as far as his distancing, his defense, I feel his offense was consistent. I feel his kicking game was consistent. And um, you know, especially with the injury, when you see when you see how Santos's efficiency kind of dropped off, that's where that that was the difference. That was the difference in it. Jones was able to control the range a little bit once he slowed down. And to be quite honest, I don't think Santos, even if he was healthy, was going to be able to put out enough volume consistently to um, take over the fight. He, he had his moments. He looked better than people expected, or he looked better than most people expected. But he, in my opinion, he didn't do enough to win. I just didn't feel he did that. And, what I, was and I know people say that. Go ahead. But no, I was going to say, what was interesting to me is that I haven't heard anything, uh, not that I've looked a whole lot, but I watching the fight, you know, I, I work for Fight Metric and we track all the stats for the uh, card. I noticed that he got hurt at the end of the first round. You see him kind of wince right when the right when the round ends. He goes and turn to walk towards the corner. You see him wince and kind of like flinch on that left leg or the one that injured knee. And I wondered when it occurred. It looked like he, when he, it occurred when he kind of stepped off the cage. But if he does not have that injury, let's say he's 100 percent healthy for 20 for 25 minutes. Do you think we have a new light heavyweight champion? I think it's easy to say. I think it's easy to say that because you're like, well, you take you look at it in the vacuum. He was doing this before. Jones didn't really. Most people feel Jones didn't have an answer, and and Jones continued to kickbox him at range. But I think the two things I think would one of the two things would have happened. At some point, Santos would have slowed dramatically because if he would have. He'd, he would have tried to ramp his volume up. He would have saw the success. He would have taken more chances. Like big and in taking those chances, I think he would have, A, either exhausted himself or B, he would have taken a chance for a fighting strike, been taken down, and then worked over by Jones. I think because he couldn't really force the issue past a certain point, Jones settled into that long-range kickboxing match and wasn't going to give up any ground or, or take any other chances getting a takedown or really opening up himself. But if Santos was injured, so he started picking the spot a little bit more. But if Santos wasn't injured, he would have went out. Went. No. All right, Schwan, you're kind of cutting out in and there. Like, can you... Um... Shawan, so you're cutting out a little bit there, man. I, I know you got some great analysis to add to reviewing these cards. So I need you to get somewhere where the connection is a little bit better because you're definitely cutting out um, as you're giving your key thoughts there. But um, I, I, heard, I heard most of what you said there. And um, what was most interesting is that a lot of people are looking at this in a way where asking that exact question that you just brought up. If Jones, or excuse me, if Santos wasn't injured, would this fight look differently? And I, um, I don't know, man. I wonder what his aggression would be like. I wonder if he would have sat back and countered more. I don't think that Jones would have gone for takedowns if he wasn't uh, healthy. The thing is, because Jones had opportunity to score some takedowns while uh, Santos was injured, and he knew not to go in for him just simply because he didn't want to take the risk of eating any big shots. So I wonder how that would have played out for him 
Oh, Shawan, why are you moving around? Can you, uh, never mind, go ahead. Go ahead. And so what I think was interesting there is that um, we don't know what what really would have happened on Saturday if everybody was, uh, or if Santos was healthy 110%. But I do think the fight would have looked a little bit differently. Maybe he may not have won, but I do believe he would have been more aggressive, especially in that last round, because I do believe his corner was telling him that the fight was close. But I think he would have kind of like let it all out, let that balls the wall in. But yeah, like that was definitely a um, contentious fight for him. And I know that uh, that injury kind of made uh, a, an extra burden on his shoulders. What I think is actually interesting about this as well, too, is if he was like, let's say he uh, let's say he did win and he gets that split decision nod. He is out until I think the middle of 2020 for an extended period of time. So. Would the UFC even have let him keep that title, or would he been would have been stripped straight out out the gate? That is a serious question that we ha- I don't think anybody's really asked quite yet because he would have been gone for an extended period of time. So let me see how I need to fix strong volume here. Sorry, folks, I'm having a little bit of technical issues here because I can't. Shwan, Shwan, can you unmute your mic? In the user interface? There you go. Yeah, there you go. Sorry about that. Yeah, so what I was saying is that is a subject I haven't heard anybody else speak about. There would have been no way he could have defended the title, and they would have been forced the UFC to have another interim title until he, he could rightfully come back and fight. So if he would have won, it would have tipped over the whole lightweight division, light heavyweight division, because the biggest fight in the division would have been him and him and Jones in a rematch, and that fight's off the table for, for the better part of a year and a half. And that's if everything goes correctly in the uh, rehab and the surgery, which is no guarantee in itself. Yeah, because he tore almost every ligament in his knee and, and his uh, meniscus as well. So that, that, that's pretty scary. Like, that's the same type of injury that put Juliana Pena out for more than a year and a half. Yeah. The one thing people forget when you have an injury, people like to, it's like when something else happens and people like to act like people do the same thing when you become injured or you run out of money or something's impeding you in your uh, particular goal. The fact of the matter is when you get injured, you have to make an adjustment. You can't do the same things you want to do at the same pace or the same physicality. You have to make an adjustment. So you're assuming that Santos is going to go all out. But the fact of the matter, he's just doing the best he can while being physically compromised. And that changes how he fights. And if you're Jones, Jones is a cerebral guy. If he sees you slowing down, he's thinking, oh, I've got to him. He's, he's tired. He can't throw the same volume. He's not throwing the same shots. So mentally, my pressure is getting to him. Mentally, the fact that he can't knock me out is breaking him. In Jones's mind, he's thinking that this guy's exposed himself for being a guy who fights in spots and is kind of a front runner. Jones isn't thinking this guy's injured. He's thinking I've got him right where I wanted to because he can't maintain this pace. So in that, in the injury kind of played into that. Once again, I don't think that Santos would have been as poised had he not injured himself. I think he would have taken some big chances looking for that knockout. And the people keep talking about how he hit Jones and how Jones was scared off a little bit. 
but nobody's discussing the fact that he was taking the same shots Jones was taking. Those are the shots that Santos usually knocks guys out with, and Jones is right there for the entirety of the fight. So the power, even though it was enough to threaten Jones, it wasn't enough to turn the fight at any moment. And if Santos really would have taken that chance, that's when you see the takedowns. That's when you see the clinch. Jones doesn't initiate him any so, so much as he beats you up at range, and then he lets you rush in and get ties you up for the clinch, get you for the takedown. That never happened because Santa, Santos was compromised in the first round. He couldn't take any chances. He couldn't take a load up on a big right hand. He couldn't throw a wild and crazy spin kick. He couldn't th- do a jumping knee. He was physically incapable. So he was forced to fight in a more controlled and poised manner than you usually see him fight normally. In fact, the injury might have been the best thing to happen to him. Because you see, we've seen how many fights when a guy's landing all the shots he wants. What does he do? He gets overeager and gasses quick or thro- throws himself out of position and gets taken down and finished. With that injury, you can't take those chances. So that might have actually helped his performance. And I don't thought. think anybody's considering that factor. That's an interesting thought there. Um, last question about this main event before we move on. Are we at a point where we are seeing a decline in John Jones' ability? He's still rather young. I think he's like 32, I believe. And there's questions rising now about whether or not he is slowing down, per se. And I do slowing down in air quotes. He turns 32 on next next week. So are we looking at a are we looking at peak John Jones right now? Is he slowing down? Did all his time off help him? What should you expect next time you see him out? Or is this a fight where he had to fight a different style to keep himself from getting knocked out? I think there's two things you have to look at. One, and, and a few, only a few analysts have talked about this. Um, uh, friends on Heavy Hands, they discussed this. It's something that I noted. Most guys that John Jones has fought have been mostly wrestler, wrestler kind of puncher types. He hasn't faced a lot of guys who can kick with him at range, like Rashad Evans isn't a kicker. Anthony Smith can kick a little bit, but he's not really a dynamic, fast, high, high athleticism level kicker. Santos is, which means that the range Jones likes to usually work at where he's untouchable because he can pick people off with his push kicks, his oblique kicks, his leg kicks, his head kicks, his body kicks, his front kicks, his snap kicks. Santos can Santos can challenge him in that range. And part of the and if you remember in the first Gustafson fight, what made Gustafson dangerous is Gustafson didn't he didn't he did he challenged Jones at every range. He challenged him at clinch range, he challenged him at boxing range, but he also was willing to kick a little bit and counter Jones off of kicks. And that's what throw through Jones on because Jones is used to setting up range and dictating. Santos is a skilled enough guy and a good enough athlete where he was able to exploit that. And that's what made Jones look a little bit worse because Jones hasn't had to face many guys who actually have a legitimate, skillful, athletic kicking game. So you're not, I don't know that you're seeing a necessary slippage, but you're definitely see, seeing him fight at a, at a range and a pace he's not used to because he can't lean exclusively on his long range weapons to dictate the pace. So when you see a guy who's used to having a plan A that always works and you take away his plan A, you have to expect to see some sort of rustiness or ineffectiveness because nobody's plan B is as effective as their plan A or more effective. If your plan B was more effective than your plan A, it'd be your plan A instead of your plan B. So Jones was forced into a little bit of his plan B and then he just accepted the range he was at. He was determined to kickbox with Santos instead of initiating a check down or really trying to pressure. He was going to stay at range and try and out kick back out kickback Santos. I don't think he even entertained the idea of forcing a takedown or really pressuring him because he thought he was winning those exchanges. Um, Jones has been on the sidelines a lot, and he hasn't really been through a whole lot of wars. I really think Jones is one of the more fresher and more experienced fighters, 
um, I would expect like if I'm going to say I'm going to see physical slippage in them, I would expect that to be maybe another year and a half, maybe another two years before you see something really noticeable. I just think he had a style matchup he wasn't familiar with. And then I think in his mind, he decided, I'm going to beat this guy at his strength. I'm going to break this guy. And in doing that, he exposed himself to making a fight a little, little bit closer than it would have been normally, which once again was also aided by Santos being more disciplined and more poised than he usually is because he was injured and he couldn't set, sell out like he usually does. Good thoughts there. So let's move on to the co-main event where we have Amanda Nunez knocking out Holly Holm in the first round of their fight. It's interesting because she similar to the way that Holm knocked out Rousey, or not, excuse me, the way Shevchenko knocked out uh, Jessica I is kind of similar to that head kick finish. Um, but here it is, Nunez, man. She's defeated every woman who's been a featherweight or a bantamweight champion within the organization. And I firmly believe she's the uh, greatest women's fighter of all time. What did you think of this fight here? And what are your thoughts about Nunez's legacy overall? Well, first off, I, I initially told people that I felt Holly Holm would win. <clears throat> and I pointed out my reasonings being that Holly Holm has been notor notoriously durable throughout her career. I mean, she's been hit, she's been chipped up, but she's never really been rocked or knocked out. She's taking big hits from Ronda. She's taking big hits from Cyborg. She, she went in an almost completely striking battle with Duran Durandamy for five rounds and got punched after the bell, and she was still there at the end of the fight. So I felt that with her style that she was going to come out, make Nunes chase her, like refuse to engage Nunes, make Nunes chase her, then tie up in clinches, wear her out, go for takedowns, even if you don't get them, just get Nunes in the positions where she has to really fight body to body and she has to maintain a pace because everybody who Nunes has fought in her win streak she's been able to dictate the pace she hasn't been forced to fight any faster any harder than she wants to and the fights that she has lost she's been forced to go outside that pace either because the person took tons of punishment like Katz and Gano or because the person forced a, far, a forced a high level grappling pace and physicality like Sarah Dialio did to her and I figured between Holly's movement her long-range weapons, her feints, and her, her new work in the clinch and her grappling, she'd be able to take the shots necessary to last later into the fight and then pull away late, maybe get a stoppage, take her down, maybe get a stoppage. But what happened is Holly was able, never able to get her range with Nunez. Nunez was able to force Holly into leading, and Holly is terrible on the lead. She, she can't lead with, whatsoever. When she fought Shevchenko, she was winning until she started leading. And every time she tries to lead, it, it exposes her lack of distance management. It exposes the poor technique in her punching and it exposes the fact that she's very inaccurate in her striking. Her and Caitlin Chukagan throw 10 strikes and miss seven of them every time they throw. So Holly's missing. Nunes is picking her apart. Nunes faints her. Holly's on one leg. And then basically Nunes just wipes, wipes her off the face of the earth with a kick. It was some high, not necessarily high level technique, but very high, high IQ strategy. That, we, that Nunez used, and she exploited everyone at Holmes' weaknesses. And most importantly, she knew that Holmes was going to try and force a pace and grapple with her and um, tie her up in clinches and takedown attempts. Or if she gets taken down, she's going to get right back up to push that pace on her. And Nunez never let Holmes get her clinch game going. Clinch, Holmes couldn't get to the body. Holmes couldn't use the elbows. Holmes couldn't lean on her and grind on her. She was, she, she was able to control that position. So Nunez fought not just an athletically dynamic fight in a technically sound fight, she fought a very high IQ, brilliant fight, which you should expect from Mike Brown. But in this fight, I, I, I was wrong. I knew that Nunes could beat her, but I figured that Holmes' durability, mobility, 
and her her she's 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 not really a technical fighter but she's such a competitor she's always willing to fight in any level and push the high pace i figured she could maybe get nunez in a spot where nunez would overextend herself and nunez just wasn't having it she just outclassed home now i still think home could have done better i think she should have stayed on the counter and kind of picked her spots and used a long-range weapon and get it and still push for those clinches and grappling exchanges but nunez won and she did so impressively and i can't hate on her at all she's she really is the uh, greatest women's fighter of all time in mixed martial arts, probably in combat sports as it stands right now. So what are your thoughts about all these people trying to insert Shevchenko into this conversation? I, I, I'm frustrated by this because not if, if that second fight was the only fight between the two, I would be here all day for the conversation. Yes, Shevchenko should be considered to be one of the greatest, uh, should be considered a part of this specific conversation. Nunez has beaten her twice. And the first one, it was two rounds to one. It wasn't any question about that. That fight wasn't close. Nunez scored as a takedown late, and she did what she needed to do to win that round. Shevchenko won the, the, the second round. Nunez won the first. And that third round came to came down to those, like, the last minute and a half where Nunez scored a takedown, and she controlled on top, and she did what she needed to do. In my opinion, and you, and, and you know where I stand with this, that, like people, the UFC and uh, of our contingent of the MMA viewer base are within a certain demographic, and they are pushing hard for Shevchenko to be the world beater that they foresee her to be. And this is a narrative that has different tones to it, rather than just what happens within the cage. Amanda Nunez is a is a woman uh, is a minority woman. Uh, and she is a lesbian. She's happy and proud in that. And that does not sit well with many within that main demographic. And they'll do whatever they have to do to d- discredit her. Well, I think it's twofold. In the cage, if if you had somebody who's fought the best women of all time and essentially dominated, she dominated Dur- Durandamy. She stopped first to stop home in MMA, if I recall correctly, like stop her by punches. She stopped Rousey. She stopped Tate. She's beaten just this list of, you know, ranked and top-level fighters, Olympic champions, and so on. Nunes has become like a Mike Tyson figure. Or like, it kind of dominates similar to uh, Floyd Mayweather. But if you, if you, if Floyd dominates everybody and outclasses everybody, and then you have somebody who can hang with Floyd, that person instantly, their stock rises. And that's what happened with Shevchenko. Shevchenko, in the first fight, Nunes gassed badly. And there was a point where people thought Shevchenko was going to finish Nunes. And even in the second fight, even though it wasn't as exciting, it was a close It was a close fight. And once again, b- between Mike Brown and um, Nunes's IQ, they were able to pull out a late win, make the most decisive offense in the fight that stood out. And that was a, that is a credit to both of them. But the reason people are giving Shevchenko so much credit is, one, Shevchenko shows she's clearly the second best fighter at Bantamweight by far because nobody else has been able to get out of the round with, with Nunez. And Shevchenko took Nunez's best shot on the ground, on the feet, and was able to come back and stay competitive. Two, since she's gone on, nobody, nobody's even tested Shevchenko. She's walked through everybody. She's looked like a world beater. And three, because of Shevchenko's weight. Most people are saying Shevchenko's a legitimate flyweight. So you're telling me a girl who's actually a girl who's fought at Bantamweight and a girl who fought at Featherweight? couldn't finish this girl who fought at flyweight 
that makes it a little bit more legitimate because people are saying, imagine if they were the same size. Imagine if she didn't have that that size disadvantage. But they were the same size. Yeah, Twice. but in, in, the, in, theory, in, in the real fight, in, in, and I'm just going by the actual fighting, in the real fight, she, Shevchenko could never fight at 45. That clearly shows you that Nunez is a bigger Bantamweight. So to that, as far as the actual fight skills, I can understand why people are saying that there's close between them because there's never been a fight where Nunez has just blown Shevchenko out. I don't think Shevchenko's on the same level. She can't be. She lost to her. But who else, who else has pushed Nunez as far at Shevchenko outside of Zingano in the UFC, nobody. So people are looking at the next person. Now, on the outside of it, I see your bias. I get it completely. Only thing I'm saying as far as the end cage between the fight between them both, th- there's an argument based on how the fights have gone. But out of the cage, it's clear. They want Shevchenko. They're pushing for Shevchenko. She's kind of got a look they like. She's kind of got an approach they like. She's got a personality they like. And to push Nunez requires you t- to do more work. Nunes requires you to do more work. You can push Shevchenko easily. You can push Paige, Sage Northcutt, Paige Manzan easily. Pushing someone like Nunes requires a certain amount of effort that the UFC it isn't really invested in making. I'm going to say that's partly on the UFC. I'm going to say that's partly on Nunes' group. Now, they shouldn't have to do the work, but they get paid for a reason. And if I have a management group and they haven't found some way to make me it big in my own demographic, she's got two. She's got three demographics. She's a woman. She's part of the gay and lesbian community, and she's Brazilian. And as far as I know, she's not big in any of those demographics. So to a certain extent, I know her her team shouldn't have to do that, but all the people who were big stars, Ronda's group pushed her hard. Connor was big before he got the UFC, and I understand the organizations pushed him, but his people did the work too. I don't know that Nunes' people have done anything to separate her except say, well, she's beating the best. UFC make her a star. I've never seen the UFC make anybody a star. Oh, that's not true at all. Who, That's who not they true. Made a star? Dude, they Connor, okay. Connor was a star before. Connor he was, was no near a star like he was. He was when he was when nowhere he, near it. But he he already had a huge fan base. He had people coming over to see him already. Dude, he when he here. when he came into the UFC, but before that Dennis Seaver fight, he was probably on par with a Korean zombie, maybe as a as a name value. UFC played a major part in elevating him to where he is. Today, Ronda Rousey, when she came over from Strike Force, she was probably what she was a growing, budding star. But look at how they promoted the fight with, with the, the fight with her and Nunez as the basis. You, they didn't even mention Amanda's name at all, and she was the champion coming into that fight. The UFC has struggled to make stars. I mean, they've struggled to make a consistent batch of stars. I can say that they probably made ten tops. At the very top, the only person I will say is a huge megastar before they came in was Brock Lesnar. Oh, I would ne- I would never argue with a megastar, but I feel like I feel like Nunes' team hasn't done anything for her. I feel like she pays them to do a job, and they could have done that job better. I feel like at the same point, because she's been, even though she has she's been the B side, lots of fighters have been the B side and turned into stars. Manny Pacquiao was the B side to, to Oscar De La Hoya. Manny Pacquiao turned into a worldwide star. That wasn't just boxing. That was just a promoter. That was Manny's team. Floyd Mayweather wasn't a big star before he fought Oscar. He fought Oscar, and Floyd was Floyd's Floyd's popular among black black fight fans. And black fight fans don't generally support their fighters like that. They don't. There's not. There's tons of huge Mexican stars. There's not tons of legitimately huge boxing black stars. And Floyd became a star. He was a B side. Oscar was the story. Oscar was the story mm-hmm. against Pacquiao. That's true. 
they turn they turn huge because part of their their teams did some kind of work and and this this people think I hate Mandanunas. People think I'm they're like, oh, you're biased. You're being a coon. I'm not being any of those things. I'm just telling you. I'm just asking you, what did her team do? Because if somebody's not doing it for you, yeah, you shouldn't have to. But did your team? Did they? Did they? Did they invest money in you? Because sometimes you have to invest money to make money. And she's had four big platforms. She fought the not just the best fighters. She fought the most popular fighters in women's mixed martial arts history. She had three, four big pay per views in a row. And yet she still they still haven't found a way to to get her t- to the next level. I'm not even talking about huge superstar. I'm talking about like a big superstar. How do you do how do you fight Cyborg, Ronda, and Misha? And you're no you're no more popular than you were when you first start fought them. To me, that means and she, I don't know that she's popular in Brazil. I don't know that she's popular in the gay gay lesbian gay community. I don't know that she's popular among women. So you're telling me out of your own demographics, you can't be a star. You can't be a superstar until you dominate your own demographics. That's why Tyron Woodley is not a superstar. Andre Ward is not a superstar. They don't dem- they don't dominate their own graphics. Stephen Thompson's not a superstar. He doesn't dominate his own his own demographic. Connor is. Ronda I is. I don't I don't think she ever will be um uh like a megastar. I don't, and I agree. I don't think she necessarily is captivating within her own spaces. I know she does have some um marketing opportunities outside of what the UFC provides, but I follow her on. Instagram and I see those from time to time, but there is still a disservice that the UFC does to um, specific demographics, especially oh, minority yeah. women of color and men of color. They they do a disservice to that space. I mean, we see it all day every day. They Dana White actually just admitted that they promoted Darren Till too hard when and we saw how that that played out. Um, they promoted Ben. Look at the way that they promoted Ben Asper in a way. That, that they have as of late. Now, he did a big part of that as well, too. But the UFC does have an issue uh, or a struggle, per se, in how they market people of color. I mean, it's clear. We've seen it time and time again. I will, ne- I will, never, I will never argue somebody who is at legitimate point. Tyrone Willey should have been better. John Jones should be bigger. A lot of people should be bigger than they, than they are based on the fact that the UFC caters to a certain – category it's not even that like it's not sorry to construct but it's not even that but they consistently undercut it's not even the fact that they i can see you said okay they're promoting darren till and tyron willie just as hard and for some reason darren till is getting higher and higher no that's not even it they undercut the people of color john jones even before he i mean yes he's had his, his issues but he's been undercut demetrius johnson look how dana white talked about him tyron willie look how dana white talked about him um, Rashad Evans, the same thing. Rashad, or not, uh, uh, Quentin Rampage Jackson is probably the only one that we can think of that didn't really play that game. But look how how many examples is it that we've seen? They actually do the opposite and tell and basically tell people almost not to watch. Oh no, no, I I will never I will never argue that point. The Ronda point is the best point anybody ever has. Ronda and Page. Because Rhonda is not a clever, off the top, creative type of person. She's kind of she has a presence, but she's no she's not she's not an interesting interview. Neither is Paige Van Zandt. She's not stupid. She's not a loser. I'm not saying that. I'm saying she's not interesting. When people tell me about Connor, I'm like, Connor's got some great A. Yeah, he stole some from Ric Flair, but Connor's very good on the microphone. Connor's very charismatic. We can't we can't put people say, oh, Connor. Yeah, Connor was given some favors, but Connor kind of took it and run it. That's like saying, well, Ric Flair was given favors. Rick Flair, Rick Flair is very good at what he d- does in selling fights. So I can't compare people to Connor, but people have not given them the, the same shot. And 
Dana does undercut people. Dana does shortchange people. The only thing I ever tell people is that some, not every, one, not everybody's going to be a superstar. That's just never going to happen. And two, some of these fighters are their own worst enemies. They don't want to do the things necessary. Demetri Johnson doesn't want to travel all over the globe doing interviews and popping up at shows and doing all this stuff to 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 become a star. He doesn't want to be. He doesn't want to be critical. He doesn't want to talk shit. He doesn't want to be flashy. He wants to be Demetrius Johnson. That's fine. Nobody's nobody's buying millions of dollars of Demetrius Johnson merchandise. Floyd Mayweather took on a persona because he wanted the money. He wanted the fame. Conor McGregor takes on a bit of a persona because he wants the money. He wants the fame. You've heard Tyrone Willie say, I'm only going to be me. You've heard Demetrius Johnson say, I'm only going to be me. But they're not even willing to take the opportunity to try to do something different. They only want to do what they want to do, and that's fine. But just like in real life, if you want to do what you want to do, some people are going to buy it, some people aren't. If you're not even willing to try something different, you can't just blame the organization. Connor, Connor took some chances to get where he's at, to get these big pay-per-view buys. Demetrius Johnson is like, it's just another fight, another day in the office. Okay, yeah, great. That sells a lot of fights. I'm just here to work hard. I just want to be a fighter. I don't want to do these interviews. Well, like Rhonda said, not everybody wants to be a superstar because that comes with it a huge sacrifice. I don't know that Amanda Nunes wants to make that sacrifice either. I don't know that she wants to. I'm not saying she doesn't. I don't know that she wants to. I knew Rhonda wanted it bad. Holly didn't want it as bad. Misha didn't want it as bad. Rhonda wanted it, and Rhonda pushed for it. I don't know that Nunes is doing that. But outside of that, I think Nunes' team could do more. But are you, if somebody says a UFC shortchanger, I'm never going to argue that. They have mishandled her. They could have done more with her. But just because you're a good fighter, doesn't make you popular. That justifies your popularity. Peyton Manning was a huge superstar before he became a Super Bowl champion. Sometimes it's just who you are. It's just how it is. I, I can't fault anybody for that. I just don't think it's right the way she's been done. And yeah, the UFC should make a better effort. But if it's my career or my client's career, I've got to take control and do more on my own end. If the UFC ain't going to help me, i got to help myself. I have to. I agree with you on that. So let's turn back to... Um the fight itself. What do you do next with Nunez? Do you pair her up with Shevchenko? Do you let Shevchenko kind of run with flyweight for right now? Or do you focus on that um, cyborg rematch? Or is it someone else? Is it Aspen right now, Ladd? I, right now, I mean, you can put her... You, if Aspen Ladd wins, you can put her in. But Aspen Ladd is... Unless Aspen Ladd takes a huge leap forward, technically, she's not going to She's not gonna survive against Holly. She's tough. She's fresh. I mean, Nunez, she's tough. She's fresh. But she's really poor IQ, and she's really hittable. That's not a good combination against a guy, girl who's knocked out the two most durable fighters in women's mixed martial arts history. That's that's not a good look. And it's not a big fight either. Uh, the biggest fight, as far as money-wise, is if Cyborg beats Felicia Spencer and she fights Cyborg. That's the best option they have for her, as far as money and acclaim. And then, or if you let Shevchenko, Shevchenko defend her title two or three more times, and then you let her move up for a super fight for the third go-round, because now you have two fights worth of a storyline. So those are the two best options. Cyborg first, and then Shevchenko afterwards is the best option they have. Either one, If she beats Cyborg and then has to fight Shevchenko in a trilogy, that's a huge fight. And even if she loses Shevchenko in the third fight, then the fourth fight it becomes even bigger. It could be like a Manny Pacquiao, Juan Marquez sort of, sort of thing, if it's done right. But those are her only two options as far as big-name fights. The, the, the bad part for Nunez, and this is touching on her, her celebrity, she's already fought the biggest stars she can fight there's really no other big stars for her to fight right now. She's already fought them all. It's like somebody getting to fight Manny, Miguel Cotto, Floyd Mayweather, and Canelo. Okay, well, there's no... You've already fought the biggest stars. So there's really nowhere else to go up as far as acclaim and opportunities to make new fans. She's going to have to do it the hard way now and just fight a bunch. 
but the two best matches for her are Cyborg and Shevchenko. Those are, those are the best options for her financially. True. Okay. So let's uh, talk about what we saw with Jorge Masvidal, where he absolutely obliterated uh, Ben Askren in whatever it was, four round, four, four seconds, five seconds, whatever the hell it was. Um, did you expect that? And is Jorge Masvidal a star now? Was that the moment where he became a star and we can now begin talking about him in the same way that we talk about the Diaz brothers or some of these other cult classic stars? Number one, if I'm if I'm gonna be honest, because I, I, I know some people in that in that who move in that circle in that gym. So when people are like, Oh, I'm so shocked, you can look on Twitter, I wasn't shocked. I didn't say, Oh, well, so I wasn't shocked at all. First of all, I wasn't shocked just from an analyst point of view. Ben Askren is easy to hit. He doesn't set up takedowns very well. He doesn't react well to feints or attacks. So even when he fought Robbie Lawler, what's the first thing me and you said? He can get blown off the map in the first couple rounds. He has to get his hands on Lawler. He has a slow Lawler down. He can work him down, work him over, finish him. The same applied to Masvidal. Masvidal's an all-round fighter, a very skillful fighter, and a guy who can finish if you're going to give him the openings to finish. So from an analyst point of view, I wasn't shocked. From the fact that I know people in the circle, I was not shocked. I, I, if we would have done the show, I, I'm hand to God, swear on my kids' lives, I would have told you there's a good chance Masvidal knocks him out inside of one round. That would have been his best shot, as far if I'm looking at as an analyst. His best shot is to finish Askren early when he's cold, because Askren's not used to this level of athleticism. He's not used to guys who, who have the seasoning and the balance of skills that can kind of challenge him, at least early in a fight. He's just not. You can tell. In the first two UFC fights he's been in, He's been hit more and he's been hurt more than he had in the entire length of his career. That's how big the gap is. And it takes time to make that adjustment, especially when you're a one-dimensional fighter. So the, sh- the fight was not a shock to me at all. Wasn't shocked, wasn't surprised. The knockout was incredible. But as far as like, was I shocked? No, not shocked. Not shocked by the knee. That was not shocking to me. Not shocked by the KO, was not shocked out. The severity of it, yeah. How it happened? No, I keep telling y'all, I, I know people. So this was not shocking at all. So what's next for him? He's talking about uh, Conor McGregor. You know, people are talking about him in the title picture if um, Kobe Covington doesn't win. Do you think he's already well, left Kobe Covington? I'm a fan of anyone leaping over Kobe, Kobe Covington all day, every day. But what do you think you would do with him next? Well, this is the one thing. You've heard his interviews. And what did Mas- what has Masvidal said routinely? He goes, I'm not doing, of course, I want to be a champion, but he said, this is the thing that stands out. He goes, I'm doing this for my family and for my kids. I want to make sure my kids are good. I want to make the money that's going to change their lives. Who in the UFC generates life-changing money? I mean, he better fight, he better fight uh, Connor or somebody else. Like, he better fight John Jones or something. If you're looking, yeah, if you're looking for life-changing money, if you're looking for it to maximize and really make money that's going to stand out, pretty much be the high point of your UFC career, if that's an option, Conor McGregor is the best option because Jorge Masvidal, with the way he is and the way he's finished his last two fights, and he's kind of got the swag, he's got the attitude, he's got the extra stuff. You know the first thing people are going to wonder, is Conor going to get crazy with Jorge? Because we know Jorge will punch you outside the cage, he'll punch you in the cage, he'll make you pay for it in the cage, he'll run up on you in the hotel, you come in the backstage and run up on him, he'll smack you, even if you've got your entire crew with you, he'll run through your entire crew. So is Conor going to test Jorge? Is Connor really willing to try Jorge? Is the UFC willing to put a fight together that could get just as out of hand as as uh, McGregor and Nurmagomedov did? Because it could. 
Jorge knows Jorge knows people. He has backup. He has a whole crew of fighters and people who aren't fighters who are willing to show up at a press conference and match up whatever Conor McGregor brings. So if he's looking for life-changing money, the easy fight is Conor McGregor. I don't know if Conor wants it. I don't know if Conor's interested in it. But a fight with Jorge is a big, big – that's a big fight. That's a pay-per-view fight right now. That could sell – outclass anything available on the market right now for Jorge or for Conor right now. Outside of that, he's got to get the title fight. He crushed Till. He destroyed a guy who hadn't been defeated in, what, 10, 5, 7 years? A guy who's been a two-division champion, a two-weight class champion, and he did it in less than 10 seconds? I mean, there's nobody else. There's no way I feel that Colby Covington could have a performance that overcomes that against Robbie Lawler, that could move him ahead of Masvidal. We've already seen Lawler get knocked out in a round, so that's not impressive. And if it's a back-and-forth fight, that doesn't work either. So I don't see any sort of way how Masvidal does not get the next title shot. He's on the biggest run of his life. He's gotten all these new fans, mostly because of Ben Askren's crap-talking. And just as a side note, Masvidal was not a big star. He got a fight against a big star. He beat him, and then he put on a show afterwards that has expanded his stardom, even though he's not a big star. So when people tell me it can't be done, we just saw it done right now. So he's a big star now. He's in the driver's seat. It's whatever he wants. If you get that McGregor fight, I take it. I take it, and I take that 2 or $3 million payday. If you get a title fight, take that as well, because the McGregor fight might follow suit afterwards. McGregor might be willing to move up to fight a guy like Masvidal who's stylistically a little bit easier to deal with than an Usman or a Woodley. What do you think about Askren's response to getting knocked out? He's been, you know, making the rounds, talking to media members, you know, basically saying that he deserved it, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts about how he got knocked, his response to how he's gotten knocked out? You know, it's the same thing people bash Connor about. They're like, Connor talks all this stuff. For the most part, when Connor has lost, he's made very few excuses. He's kind of owned it. Now he has to get back into character, of course, and eventually he goes on and his, his tirade and it's war and it's revenge. Eventually he goes back to that. But initially he takes the loss straight up. And Ben Askren did the same thing. He didn't say it was luck. He gave Jorge credit for it. He, uh, he didn't whine and cry about Jorge punching him after the bell. And the ref stepped in. He was okay with that. And he just accepted the loss. Like, this is how you expect a professional world-class athlete who's been in combat sports the majority of their life to react. And it's, it's funny because so many athletes have such poor reactions to fight. You, I mean, most times when a guy gets knocked out, I didn't get a chance to show what I can do. It's not fair. They stopped the fight. They have all these sort of weird things they have to say. So for Ben to react the way he did is actually kind of refreshing. I'm actually more of a fan of him now than I was before because guys are great when they win. Everybody wins. Oh, I'm this kind of guy. I'm that kind of guy. The minute they lose, you start hearing these excuses and this whining and this crying and I need a rematch right now. And instead, he's just saying, give me another tough guy. I lost this fight. I don't deserve a rematch. I don't have any argument. I just need to work my way up. And when's the last time you've ever heard any top competitor say that? I mean, Frank Yeager got washed by Jose Aldo, and he was thinking, he's screaming, I won the fight. It's like, nah, dude, you didn't. Just work your way back up. So I'm really impressed by Ben Askren, actually. I don't know if he's just putting on an act or it's just a show, but if this is how he really feels, I'm impressed with him. This, this is how competitors are supposed to re- react to adversity. He's actually showing people what they should be doing in adversity, unlike a Ronda Rousey or pretty much any other fighter who just starts making excuses for why they lost. And if you think about all our favorite fighters, when they lose, they got a lot of excuses and they got a lot of anger about everybody else about why they lost the fight and just said instead of just saying, I lost, I'll do better and I'll work my, I'll earn a rematch or I'll earn my spot back. So I'm impressed with them. That's, that's world class. 
that's the kind of guy who should be coaching kids, and that's the kind of example kids people should be following moving forward. So another individual who took a loss and who was known to make his excuses is Luke Rockhold. But he got stopped pretty violently on um, Saturday by Jan Blakovich, uh, knocked out in the first round, I believe it was. What are your thoughts about that fight there, man? Dana White is calling for Luke Rockhold to retire. I think he's calling for him to retire because Luke Rockhold made $200,000 on Saturday. But what are your thoughts about this fight? Uh, Rafael, I hate to, I hate to, I, I had a good friend who, I've had a couple friends who worked with Luke Rocco before, back when he was on his streak, and he's going to be future of the middleweight division, they kept telling me, oh, he's so great, he's so wonderful, and I said, Rocco's a fraud, dude, he has athletic skills that mask very obvious technical holes in his game, he can't box, he's defensively unsound, he's a great striker, no, he's a great kicker, he's a terrible striker, he's like, he's like a worse striking Donald Cerrone, Cerrone's actually a very an excellent grappler who can strike pretty well. Luke Rockhold's the guy who can kick very well, who who can't box and can't really strike, who can't really do anything else striking, who's a very good submission grappler and actually a pretty good wrestler. And years ago we had this conversation. And you told me you're like, who are the big who are the most overrated fighters in mixed martial arts? And this is before they started losing. I said Chris Weidman and I said Luke Rockhold. These guys are living on borrowed time, and they will soon be exposed for the frauds they are. And no sooner did I say it, Wyman got wiped off the board. Luke Rockhold was talking his shit. He beat Michael Bisping. He's the man. Everybody's like, are you going to take it back? Hell no, I'm not taking it back. He's a fraud, and he will soon be exposed. And then he got knocked out by Bisping. And then he got beat around, beat around the cage by David Branch. And then he just started getting finished by everybody. And now everybody's saying, well, Luke Rockhold's chin is weak. Luke Rockhold's defense is terrible. His positioning's terrible. I don't want to hear it from you guys. Y'all weren't saying that when he was winning. I've been saying it for the past six years. And I said, he's going to be exposed. He just has not fought a good enough technical fighter or good enough athlete to be exposed. And he's been exposed again. He can't box. He can't box. He can't deal with any sort of layered attack. If you throw an initial strike at him, he's a good enough athlete and a seasoned enough fighter that he can avoid a jab. He can avoid a right hand. He can avoid a big kick. Anybody can do that for the most part. The problem is, can you avoid a one-two? Can you avoid a one-two-three? Can you avoid a one-two leg kick, one-two body kick? Can you, if I bite, make you bite with a jab, can you recover well enough to see the right hand coming? Luke does not have that. And Luke came from a camp, and this is the same thing I tell my daughters because they play basketball. I tell everybody, I say this on Twitter all the time. Combat sports and basketball have a lot in common. Both athletes spend too much time scrimmaging slash sparring and not enough time on skill development. Luke Rockhold is underdeveloped as a striker, and the only reason he got by with that shit is because he is a dynamic and athletic striker. He's not a good one. He's never been a good one, but he hasn't faced athletes good enough to force the fight where he, he force the fight where he can't handle it or put enough pressure on him to where he'd be exposed. Jacare, we already talked about him. Jacare didn't have enough didn't have enough seasoning himself. Didn't have enough skill set, so he couldn't expose Rockhold. Tim Kennedy. Great athlete, physical, tough, but he's not dynamic. He's not explosive. When he fought a dynamic, explosive guy, Belford wiped him off the table. When he fought another one, he got wiped off the table by Romero. That's what happens when you're a one-dimensional, one-note, poor defensive guy who can't take punishment. And people will tell you, well, it's because of his poor defensive positioning. Lots of guys have bad defense, but not every guy gets knocked out because not every guy has a bad chin, which Luke Rockhold does. Luke Rockhold thought by moving up a weight division, the extra weight would help him. That's not how it works. 
it doesn't work that way. You either can take a shot or you can't. You either hit hard or you can't. He thought that his skill set would overcome the size differential. His skill set is very shallow, so it was not able to overcome the size differential. And, and he got beat as a result for it. He couldn't maintain a pace. He couldn't maintain range. He couldn't defend strikes, and he couldn't get the takedowns he wants. He thought he was fighting. He, he thought at middleweight, everything by moving up, everything would just get work in his favor. He'd be bigger, stronger, faster, harder hitting. But he forgot he's fighting guys who are already bigger, stronger, faster, harder hitting, and more durable. He gave away all his physical advantages, and all they did was highlight all of his technical disadvantages. And he got stopped, as I would have predicted he would have gotten stopped had we done the show last week. I'm not shocked by this at all, and I don't know why people keep trotting him back out there. He's gotten worse as a fighter. His feel for the game's gotten worse. His defense has not improved at all, and his striking is still one note. I mean, it's I don't know who's training them, but they're not they're not it. It's they're not doing anything. They're stealing money from Luke. Do you retire him? Is he done? Do you think that he shouldn't come back to fight? What what how would you how would you solve for what Dana White said in suggesting that he retires? First of all, if I'm his manager, I'm not giving Dana White any credit. I couldn't be a manager of these fighters because me and Dana would have to fight. In fact, I just want a manager fighter so Dana can go off on me and we have to fight. I just got to punch him in the face once. Just once. I got to. But that's never going to happen. But if it does and I become a manager, you will have to scoop when me and Dana White get into a physical altercation because that will happen. Second of all, Luke Rockhold, what does he have to prove? He's a two-organization champion. He was one of the best middleweights for his time period. He kind of set up the transition between the old middleweights to the new ones. He's got a modeling contract. He, he's, From what I understand, he has some business opportunities outside the UFC. If he wants to continue to fight, I guess he can. But when you can't take punishment, it's really, really very hard to maintain. You can, you can be a step slow if you're tough. You can be a step slow technically if you're tough. But when you can't take punishment and you're technically not at the level you need to be at, you have no room for error. And the fact of the matter is his body's breaking down. Chin is, his chin's been broke. His jaw's been broken a couple times. How many times has Luke Rockhold been out from a fight or pulled from a fight for injury? Three, four times in the past couple years? How many times has he taken almost a year and a half to recover after being knocked out? His body can't hold up anymore. And at this stage, he's nowhere near title fight light heavyweight. He's clearly not able to compete at the middleweight division. What is he doing this for? For kicks? For fun? They don't pay him enough to take this kind of abuse. If he wants to, I will never argue with his fight to continue fighting, but it doesn't make any sense. It's not like Luke's not a badass. It's not like Luke wasn't a great fighter. He just was a very flawed fighter who's been exposed. It doesn't take away from any of his accomplishments. Walk away now. Go on with your new career. Make some money. Open up other opportunities. But if he wants to fight, he can fight. I would not recommend it. And if I was a manager or his fight, his fight camp, I would tell him to stop. Your body's giving you signs. and This is only going to get worse, in my opinion. So we've talked about uh, Rockhold retiring, but what about um, Diego Sanchez? This man got dominated for 15 minutes by Michael Chiesa. Some people are saying, well, he didn't get finished. I mean, he got hosed from the start to finish of this fight here. So what is it now? Um, I, I also want to talk about Chiesa. Cause he, did he look great because he was fighting out welterweight, or did he look great because he was fighting Diego Sanchez? Let's start there. Well, Chiesa is a good fighter. He's 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 limited in the sense that he's not a great striker, not defensively, not offensively. He ha has a lot of holes, and he's not a top-end athlete. So there's he can be exploited a lot on the feed, and he has been by Kevin. Uh, I can't think of the guy. Kevin Lee. Uh, Kevin Lee, um, Anthony Pettis, many other fighters have 
giving him the business on the feet. So even Jorge Masvidal gave him some work a little bit. The thing about Shisea is he's got a lot of cardio. He's good in chaos. He's able to make a, he's able to make adjustments in fights, even if they're not technically great. He makes good strategic adjustments. He's very, he's very, he doesn't get tired. He, he's hard to hurt and finish. And he's got a very opportunistic grappling game. You give him an opportunity. You take a moment off. You give up some position. They can, you're going to force a scramble. He'll sniff. He'll sniff that out. He'll scramble with you. He'll secure control. He'll work you over. He'll possibly finish you. So against Diego Sanchez, two things. One, Mike is a good guy. The Maverick, he's a good guy. He says he respects Diego. He could have really put it on Diego on the feet. He chose a fight that did two things for him. One, it showed mercy to Diego because he w- wasn't forced to just tee off on him on the feet. And two, it showed how good a grappler Chisea is because Diego is many things. He can't take a punch really anymore. He's a terrible striker. Part of that's on Diego, his lack of athleticism, his lack of skill. Part of that's on Jackson Wink for really ruining him. Before we end the show, I need to talk about Jackson Wink and their training style. Part of that's on Jackson Wink. But part, but the thing about it is, Kaseya showed how showed that he's a world-class grappler because Diego beat Marcin Held, who is still considered one of the better grapplers in the weight class. He dominated Mickey Gall. He's dominated other grapplers. You haven't seen Diego out-grappled. You've seen him beat up on the feet. You've seen him controlled but you've rarely seen him at grappled, and you have to give credit for Kisea for essentially fighting in Diego's area strength and still not just beating him, but dominating him in grappling exchanges. That's hard to do. Even though Diego's faded, if you're going to engage in a grappling, if somebody would have told me Mike, Michael Kisea is going to engage in a grappling exchange with Diego mostly, he's going to fight 75 85% in grappling exchanges, I would have told you Diego's going to win because I have rarely seen Diego out grappled. But he outgrappled them. And yeah, Diego's not who he used to be, but Greg Diego is still one of the best grapplers, best scramblers in mixed martial arts. So, so for you to dominate him from pillar to post, from beginning to end, in his realm of specialty, that's impressive. That That's still impressive to me. All right there, sir. Good thoughts on that. What about Claudia, Claudia Gadelia? She looked a lot different in her fight. And this this is her first fight since joining the East Coast Super Friends with Ricardo Almeida. That's uh, Mark Henry on those guys. Are you intrigued um, in what she's going to continue to develop into, or do you think this was more of a flash of a flash in the pan? I think it's a combination. I, I've worked with Claudia before. I worked with one of her old teams before, so I have a little bit better insight into her. Like, there's stuff you can see from a distance, but there's stuff you wouldn't see if you weren't close, a little bit closer to the situation. Simple fact of the matter is she's fighting Randall Marcos, who is top three, possibly two in the worst IQ in mixed martial arts. I think Courtney Casey's just a little bit above her. They're both awful. Um, Randa Marcos is an underachiever. She has great talent. She's tough. She's strong. She's physical. She has high cardio, but she cannot switch. She cannot switch streams. She cannot make an adjustment. She gets hung up on one strategy, and when that strat- even when that strategy, if it works for a second, she hangs on to it. If it doesn't work, she hangs on to it. That's essentially what happened. She was fighting Claudia Gadelia, who still has a bad gas tank. Don't let this fight fool you. Her gas tank isn't great, but she refused to push a pace. She fought at a range and at a pace that allowed Claudia's athleticism, Claudia's punching power, and Claudia's overall striking and defensive grappling to take over the take over the fight. At no point did Randa Marcus fight down and force the fight into a pace that Claudia couldn't handle. Because Claudia's actually a good striker. She's a very good grappler. She's a very good wrestler. The only thing is, she needs to control the pace and dictate where the fight takes place. Because when she can't, the fight keeps going to the pace she can't maintain, and she fades. That's what lost her the fight against Andrade. That's what lost her most of her fights, when she can't dictate pace. Now, if you're a lesser athlete or you're just a poor 
IQ fighter, she's going to be allowed to do that. And Mark Henry's going to help her. He's, he's going to teach her little things that are going to help her buffer and escape pressure, make her footwork a little bit cleaner, make her make her combinations a little bit second nature, make, 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 the, make her combinations don't always make sense. So he's going to make them make sense and put her in a position where she can spin out away from grappling exchanges or where she can punish the body and use feints to control you so, so that she can load up on power shots and keep you, keep you at arm's length. So you can't lean on her, you can't clinch with her, you can't tie her up, you can't grind on her. That's what he's going to do for her. But that doesn't mean he can resolve her issue because at this stage, the issue is not resolved. She doesn't have great cardio. And mentally, she's a little bit of a front runner. I've never seen her come back in a fight and win. But Mark Henry is going to make it a little bit tough, tougher for people to cut into her lead or put pressure on her. I don't know that he can fix the issue she has. I know it's strawweight. She still can't beat Andrade. I don't think she has a discipline. I think Andrade is in her mind mentally. She doesn't believe she can beat Andrade. And if you don't believe you can beat the person, I don't think you can beat the person. She's still a top talent. She's still a top five talent in the division. And there's still a lot of girls in the division she can beat. She can beat Calvillo. She can beat a lot of girls in the division. She can beat top seven, top five, maybe even top three. I don't know that she has enough to get past the elite of the division, especially with Andrade is one of the people in the way. Or having Brittany Van Buren come in, another powerhouse who's got cardio and physicality. So I expect Claudia to kind of stay in that seven to ten range, maybe five to seven range. I don't know if she's ever considered the best or second best fighter in the division again at this stage. True that, true that. That's what I want to talk about on this card. Well, last one I have listed. You can pick more if you would like. Uh, Songa Dong with a massive knockout, straight slept Alex Perez. Uh, what are your thoughts about that fight? And what should they do with Songa Dong to avoid what they did with Doho Choi? They should just not force him into wars because Dung Ho Choi, Choi and uh, Mike Perry are two fighters who've suffered because the UFC has the UFC always takes the short money. Remember this when we say that fighters being treated badly. Treated badly isn't just not being pushed. Treated badly is being put in fights that are, that are detrimental to your your long term career because they don't give you time to grow as a fighter and they put you under physical duress. Super the Korean Superboy was pushed by the UFC, but he was also punished by the UFC by being in all-action fights, same thing that happened to Mike Perry. So be careful what you ask for when you ask for the UFC's full attention, because all they do is know how to is how to mishandle fighters. I think you just do what you do with the prospect. You have them face different stylists, not all punchers, not all finishers, have them face some point fighters, have them face some defensive fighters, have them face some grapplers. Force him to have to improve his skill set and develop uh, their strategical ability to make adjustments when forced to fight at a pace or at a place that he doesn't want to fight. Stop putting him in exciting fights. Yeah, that builds fan interest, but win or lose, you only have so many of those fights in you. And you can't use them all on your way up to the title because if you win it, that's why you see guys decline so quickly after they win a title. Or that's why you see guys who lose a title fight and can never get back to the streak they were on when, on the way to the title fight. They've had the world-class beaten out of them. And the UFC is good for letting world-class fighters get the world-class beaten out of them. So they need to treat him like a prospect who could be a potential star and extend his career and give him opportunities to learn and opportunities to grow instead of taking the short money and making a war so that he could possibly win an extra $50,000 or we can be on Twitter and say, oh, my God, he slept him. They ruined so much talent by pushing them too hard. They ruined so many stars. Remember Roger Huerta? Could have been a huge star. UFC ruined that. And they're, they're determined to ruin other fighters. If you become a star, it's almost in spite of the UFC's handling because they are awful when it comes to developing prospects. 
So we're either going to see this guy be matched appropriately, or we're going to see this guy go in a three or four white fight win streak and then see him decline dramatically in the next three or four fights. I don't know which way the UFC is going. If I had to bet my money, they're probably going to ruin this kid. Interesting thoughts there, man. Um, what else stood out from you at uh, from USC 239? What else did you want to talk about? Um, Gilbert Melendez probably needs to retire. He's never a great athlete. He's not one now. And his fighting style, it just doesn't fit the way, the, the way the UFC or mixed martial arts works right now. If he was at a physical peak, it would still work to an extent. He's not. And he's being exposed badly. He needs he, I won't say he needs to retire. It's his job. Do what you want. But he's a successful coach. He has analyst position. He runs his own camp. He runs camps for fighters, successful fighters. Why he's doing this other than he wants to, I don't know. But I think he should stop. Arnold Allen, who beat him. Arnold Allen is an example of a fighter who does what I always say fighters should do. If the UFC is not keeping you busy, instead of whining and complaining about all the fights you're not getting and all the money you're not making, because the UFC, you can't pressure the UFC into doing shit. They're not moving any faster than they want to move. They're the boss. They're the two-ton gorilla. Sit your ass down and wait. You can either sit your ass down and wait and complain and whine, or you can go and get better so that when your opportunity comes, you are able to pull the trigger and you are able to execute. Most guys complain and make a big stink, then they get a big fight and they get submitted, they get beaten, they get dominated, they get crushed. Arnold Allen has continually gotten better in every UOC appearance. At every level they've given him, he's shown a little bit more IQ, aggression, ability to adjust, patience, poise, accuracy, striking, grappling, wrestling. He's gotten a little bit better. So when he got the name fighter, even though the fighter's past his prime, he could have thought he was he could have thought he had it in the bag. He could have thought, I'm gonna walk over this guy. And if he would have came in like that, Melendez would have beat him, but he didn't. He took it as a business because he's a professional. He got better, and when his opportunity came, he executed. So props to Arnold Allen for showing the veteran poise and maturity that some of the veterans in mixed martial arts continue, continually fail to do. He did his job, and I was very impressed in the manner that he did his job. And finally, Edmund Taradarian has another fight in the UFC, and if I recall correctly, he's undefeated. Now, everybody said he's a terrible coach. And I'm not saying he's the best. I think he's limited to a degree, but I told people he is a better coach than you think. And if you put him with fighters, he can improve you in certain areas to a certain extent. He's no Greg Jackson. He's no Matt Hume. I'm not saying that. But people made it seem like he was trash. He couldn't do anything for Ronda. He didn't do anything for Travis. He didn't do anything for anybody. That's not true. He just didn't do as much as needed. they needed. But he, he has some good things he can apply to a fighter. And I'm glad that another fighter who is not a world-class Olympic athlete who they can make that excuse to downplay his achievements. Now he's got another fight in the UFC who's undefeated in the UFC. It looks better than he did the first time in the UFC. So is he really that bad a coach? Maybe he's not. Maybe he's better than you think. Maybe it's not just the talent that made him. Maybe he actually has something to offer. And if his guy wins another fight and gets into the rankings of the top 12 or 15 in middleweight, then you're, the, the argument against Edmund being a terrible coach is going to have to change. It's not going to change for me because I already said he wasn't a terrible coach. But everybody else is going to have to start making up apologies. I'm not going to be one of them, but everybody else is going to have to. True, true. And make, so, sure, make sure we mark this episode so when he wins another one, like, well, you'll start seeing the pieces. Well, maybe Edmonds had a rehabilitation. He's like the Phoenix Rising. He was he was overly criticized because I will be on this show loudly proclaiming he was over-criticized by you so-called experts. Y'all are saying the same stuff I've been saying for the two years like you always are. He's not that bad. And this guy is letting... You let him have another chance to prove that he's better than he was thought as a coach and a trainer. I'll let you handle that piece. I'm not. I'm not even going to dive. 
into that. Um, you can have that all day, every day. Uh, only fight from this weekend I want to talk about is the Aspen Med Jermaine Deronomy fight because I think it has a direct correlation to the women's featherweight division. What do you see happening here? And is Lad the contender that everyone is making around to be? I think Lad talent wise is she's strong, she hits hard, she's durable, she's physical, she's aggressive, she she wants it. Like a lot of girls want it when they when they're punishing somebody, they start getting punished, they kind of break. I haven't seen that in Lad. And Lad's gotten better, not dramatically better, but through experience and seasoning and fighting better competition, she's gotten better and she's more confident. The problem I have with Lad is I don't think her camp has really developed her as a striker or really as an MMA fighter. She's still very, I'm striking or I'm grappling or I'm wrestling. I don't see smooth transitions. I don't see any defensive awareness. I don't see any layers to her striking. And I, I don't see, see her able to, to adjust, like not even strategically. I'm not even saying you got to be technically perfect, but can you do... Do you have the right idea? Her only idea is to muscle you, to eventually overwhelm you with her physicality and her, her power and wrestle you. When that doesn't work automatically, when she doesn't have a clear entry or clear able way to dominate in that realm, she runs out of ideas. And when she runs out of ideas, offensively, she has to get by on toughness and aggression, which really just gets her beat up. That's really all that happens. She's technically not a very good fighter. IQ-wise, She's more seasoned than she was before, but she really doesn't see things. She she doesn't see things, which is fine because not every fighter does. But it doesn't seem like her camp sees that she doesn't see things either. They don't see them either because the, the game plans they're having and the adjustments she makes or doesn't make, it's it's kind of damning on the on the, the camp. Because if you tell me a fighter is a hard worker, nobody works harder, nobody wants them more, nobody's more dedicated, but she's making some of the mistakes she's making and she has some of the holes she has, then I have to blame you. Because you already told me she's a hard worker. You told me she's a good listener. So if she's doing nonsense, that means she's being told to do nonsense. And she's just following the orders, which means you're not doing your job. They're getting by on her physicality and her athleticism. And that works, but it only works up into a point. Jermaine Devandamy is dangerous because even though she's not a great defensive wrestler, if she can defend the takedown just enough, she's a good enough athlete and she's strong enough in a clinch that she can get to a clinch, and even against a grappler, she can defend takedowns from there. She can work knees and elbows from there. She can almost bully a fighter. She's she's able to bully a fighter or able to maintain her position and may, maybe extend a fighter who might be a better grappler than her because she's such a good athlete and she's such an experienced mixed martial artist. So the problem for Lada is going to be, can Lada get to the spot she wants to get to? She's a better athlete than Ben Askren, but as far as setting up her shots, she's really not great either. I mean, there's lots of spots where Durandamy could feign her, chop her to the legs, feign her, knee to the face, feign her. Um, she bites on a sprawler out, punish her. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of ranges and a lot of space that Lad has nothing for Durandamy. She essentially has something for her if she can get her, tie her up, and get her down. In a pure clinch, Durandamy's still dangerous. In mid-range, Durandamy's got the better hands, and she's got the knees and elbows. Close range, Durandamy's got the knees and elbows. At long range, she's got the front kick, the leg kick, the snap kick to the face, the push kick to the body, the long jab, the long, the long right hand. There's just so many places that Durandamy has clear technical advantages over that also creates strategical advantages. Because if you want to strike, if you want to grapple or take somebody down, you have to get to certain spots. You know this. You can't just blindly shoot across the cage. That'll get you knocked out. That'll get you overextended, out of position, and knocked out or taken down yourself and then beaten up on the ground. You have to work your way into range. Lad's not good at working her range, her into range. And worse yet, when you push her out of range, 
she's terrible at exiting. Her defense is terrible. So this is a very dangerous fight for Ladd. It's, they made it, it's a showcase fight for her. They want her to win it. They know she's a wrestler, an athletic wrestler. They figure at some point she's going to get her hands on Durandami and she's going to take her down and work her over. That's most likely what's going to happen. But the fact of the matter is, Aspen Ladd has a whole lot of holes in her game from long range to get into the spot she needs to to get her hands on Durandami. And if she can't effectively pressure her, and, and Aspen Ladd's a terrible striker, she's an effective striker, but she's technically terrible, I can see Durandami spinning off the cage, sticking a jab on her, using feints, and just chopping her up all night long uh, on a way to decision win. In fact, that's, that's what I'm going to say. I think Durandami's going to be able to keep her off enough. That fight with Pennington kind of impressed me, even though Pennington's not the athlete that Ladd is. Pennington's still got better IQ and, and still has a better skill set than Ladd. The question, basically, the only way Ladd wins this is she out-athletes Durandami and just over, or, overwhelms her, takes down, and just finishes her. If she can't do that, I don't see how she wins this fight. She's, she's just not a good enough grappler or a good enough striker, in my opinion. A good enough striker, in my opinion. So even though it's likely that Ladd's going to take her down and just pound her out, uh, I'm going to go the other direction and say that Durandami um, outstrikes her and is able to survive long enough to, to win the fight. Good thoughts there, sir. So um, let everybody know what you're working on and where they can find your content. Um, you can find myself on MMA Ratings. Uh, you can always, once again, you can always contact me or Raphael on Twitter, and we will talk about the subject. Also, shout out to friend of the show, Ben Cohn. He's the only guy who is undefeated against me in picks. I always pick against Amanda Nunes. She is killing me. She's killing my record and my reputation as one of the best analysts and women's mixed martial arts because she keeps on winning. And people are like, I, I thought you know everything. Okay, I don't know Amanda Nunes. Clearly when I bet Amanda Nunes, don't listen to me. But one of these days she's going to lose, and I'm going to win, and I'm going to ride that win and flex on all of y'all all day long, all week long, the rest of my life. So don't ever let Amanda Nunes lose because I will never let the rest of y'all live down. I don't care that I'll be 1-17. and 17. I'm going to ride that one win. Like Eli Manning won his Super Bowl win against Tom Brady. I'm riding that one all the way to the end. True, true. So as usual, I'm working on all of my wrestling content, MMA, and everything else in between. You can follow me at rgarcia underscore sports. What about you, uh, Schwan? Uh, you can find me at uh, Black Jordan Green at Twitter. And um, like I said, I'm always wanting to talk. Oh wait, Raphael, can I do? Give me just one, two minutes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Video, just a second. Just to remind people, um, Diego Sanchez left Jackson Wink. And a lot of people blame Diego Sanchez for, for the lack of progression. They kind of said Diego wasn't a good enough fighter. And Diego wasn't. He's not a great athlete. He's not a great striker. He was an overachiever who got farther than his talent should have allowed him to go. But what people aren't understanding about Jackson Wink is Jackson Wink isn't a gem for people who are average athletes or average talents. Their biggest successes have come consistently fr from all-time talents. John Jones, um, Holly Holm, even Rashad Evans, all the guys who really made the noise in their camp have been guys who have been exceptional talents. And the reason that works is because they're not so much of a notes, in my opinion, a nuts and bolts camp. They're a conceptual camp. They come up with ideas and strategies and little idiosyncratic attacks and, and techniques that you have to be very open-minded to even attempt. And you have to be extremely athletic to get by on using. And if you're not a guy, person with great athleticism, great durability, and a great will to compete, it's very hard for you to have sustained success with what they teach you. John Jones is a key example. John Jones isn't the greatest technical fighter, not defensively, not offensively. He's actually got a lot of hard limitations. 
But what helps him is he's a very good athlete for his height as far as agility, timing, flexibility. And that range he has allows him to dictate terms in so many ways, allows him to use so many techniques that a normal guy with normal range, normal size could never get away with. Holly Holm, she, she won in boxing. She's a terrible boxer. She was taught to box by a Kenpo black belt who kickboxed. How do you win world titles in boxing when you're not a le- legitimately skilled boxer? Because she's a high caliber athlete, great cardio, great pace, great physicality, great durability, great heart to win. Her, abil- her physical tools and her willingness to do what her coach told her outlasted her technical tools. And it's the same thing in mixed martial arts. She shouldn't have beaten any fighter with her skill set. It's that shallow. But given the way they've had her approach fighting and her physical tools, it's allowed her to navigate the limitations of those holes and become a world champion and become a world-ranked fighter. Whether you, you can say she's lost the best or not, the fact of the matter is, except for Nunes, she's been in every fight she's been in against the best fighters in two divisions. She's been competitive. She's beat girls. And even when she's lost, it hasn't been wipeouts. It's been competitive fights. And that's what somebody who has one of the most shallow skill sets in mixed martial arts and one of the most one-dimensional skill sets in mixed martial arts. It's all because of her physical ability. I'm not saying Jackson Wink is terrible, but they're more strategy and clever ideas than they are actual nuts and bolts techniques. There's no Mike, there's no Jackson Wink fighter who is a great t- technician on the feet. I haven't seen it. Donald Cerrone never was. Um, Lando Venata isn't. Michelle Waterson isn't. Holly Holm isn't. John Jones isn't. Rashad Evans isn't. They're not. They're they're people with great physical ability who who have strategies set up for them that allow them to succeed off the backs of their physical abilities. When you start looking at their striking nuts and bolts wise, it doesn't fit. There's no real structure. There's no real progression. And for fighters like Rashad Evans, who was a great athlete with great power, John Jones with his length, his agility, his timing, his durability, Holly Holm with her cardio, her physicality, her athleticism, her durability you have room for error. But again, for lesser fighters, like a Donald Cerrone, who's not a great athlete, like a Carlos Conda, who's not a great athlete, like a Diego Santos, who's not a great athlete, that lack of structure, that lack of development gets you beat and gets you beat badly. And if it, you notice, a lot of those guys had peaks and valleys in other camps. And once they got to Jackson Wing, they had great ideas, but they couldn't execute. So it's just a reminder that Jackson Wing is big for a reason, ideas concepts strategy as far as pure straight up technique i don't know any fighter or any camp who's ever said that jackson wink is the greatest place to go you go there if you need ideas you go there if you can't process things you go there if you're maybe not super high iq because they help adjust those things they help foster those things but technically they're very limited as a team and that's part of the reason holly Holm has plateaued so early after beating ronda that's part of the reason diego sanchez left so late in the game he plateaued seven or eight years ago, but his loyalty kept him there, even though he was not getting better. And if you look at their chain of fighters, they get to a certain point, and then you stop seeing growth. Jones is an exception because he's just high IQ. But how many other fighters have you really seen after being in Jackson League for five, six years really take another step forward? That's very true there, sir. That's some, that's some good analysis about Jackson League because they do take – they take people over like over the hill. Like they just got Aaron Pico too, so they, they take them – they take like talent. raw talent and build it up. Yeah, they put it. They put it. They, if you have talent, they put you in the right direction. But as a person who's, tr- who's worked with fighters and athletes, like in basketball, when you have a top-notch athlete, anything you show them gets you returns on it. The real test of your skill and your understanding is when you can get returns on your investment with a lesser athlete. 
anybody can get results with a Pico or a home or a Jones. You can go anywhere. Ronda Rousey, you can go anywhere. Can you get results? Can you get real results? Continuous successful results with a Diego Sanchez, with some of the lesser athletes, with a uh, Tanya Evinger, somebody who's a little bit closer to Nora, a Betch Cohea. That's impressive to me because they don't have that athletic cheat code to fall back on. They have to really know their craft. And I don't know that at that camp, you were taught so much, you're taught a system and a, and a way of thinking, a way of approaching fights, more so than pure technical structures, answers, and counters to what you're being shown by the fighters you're facing. I mean, the only guys who are still with them are exceptional athletes and all-time talents. All the other guys have left. Thanks, officer, sir. So we're going to go ahead and close out, man, and we'll be back next week. I right, thank you, everyone, for listening to our content. Be sure to like and subscribe to the MMA Ratings YouTube channel so you can catch everything we're doing. And thank you for all the support, everyone. Uh, have a great day and, have, and be safe over the weekend. Good night, everybody.